The Lord is my salvation, nothing more, nothing less. The Lord Jesus is my salvation. What awesome words. So grateful to Claire and Andy for putting that worship song uh, together for us. Well, the good news is we've now chased away the New Year gremlins that are in our computer system, so we won't have the glitch that we had at the very beginning. Sorry about that song. It's an amazing song. Perhaps uh, when we get to the end of the service, uh, we'll play that song out for you, the creed that just speaks so powerfully about all the things that we believe. Well, I wonder if you can think of a time when a friend or a relative has found themselves in a difficulty or in a crisis, and you ended up being a long way away when you wanted to be close. And as much as you wanted to help, you simply couldn't be there, at least not physically. Maybe your children, uh, even grown-up ones, had gotten themselves into a jam. Maybe there'd been some difficulty at work that needed your attention. Or perhaps a friend has gotten themselves into a crisis situation. Of course, given all that we're contending with at the moment around COVID, this kind of thing is happening more and more because the government rules mean we simply can't help another person, uh, oftentimes, even if that person lives right next door to us. And let's be honest, that kind of scenario is heartbreaking and it's so painful. We just want to be close and sometimes we find ourselves far away. Well, in a sense, this is the same kind of situation that happened to the Apostle Paul. And his solution was to write a letter. And at the time of writing, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. You can read about that from Acts chapter 21. And a chap called Epaphras showed up because he desperately needed Paul's help. The trouble is, Paul couldn't go because he was quite literally in chains. The crisis was that some new doctrines were starting to be taught in Epaphras' home church in the city of Colossae. And this wonky theology was starting to invade the church and it was creating all sorts of problems. So unable to go, Paul writes a letter to the Colossians and it's that letter that we're going to be looking at during the course of the next week in our new teaching series. And in his letter, Paul is basically trying to correct some heretical teachings and to replace them with some sound theology to reestablish the truth with a capital T truth of the gospel. So what was it that was uh, all caught up in this warped and this wonky theology? Well, there was a blending together of all sorts of things. There was an Eastern philosophy that had come in. It had been mixed up with Jewish legalism, with elements of what Bible teachers have called Gnosticism with a silent G, as in gnome, Gnosticism. And this term comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. Simply put, the the Gnostics were people who claimed to be in the know when it comes to the deeper things of God. They were, if you like, claiming to be the spiritual aristocracy in the church. The problem, of course, is that Jesus was being watered down, and in fact, Jesus was even being substituted out of their theology. Very much boiled down, and it's not really as simple as this, they were promoting the idea that people could have a special knowledge, and that knowledge could be theirs if they only entered into the teachings and the ceremonies prescribed by their leaders. Well, I wonder, it's left me with a question, do we have any of these kind of heretical teachings today? And of course, the answer is yes, we do. And this kind of teaching is just as deceptive and it's just as dangerous as it was in Paul and Epaphras' day. 
We find ourselves on that slippery slope of neo-gnosticism whenever we strive for spiritual perfection or a sense of spiritual fullness by means of formulas or disciplines or rituals which substitute or even minimize Jesus and when we engage in things that are extra-biblical. As followers of Jesus, this means we must be very beware of or be aware of mixing up our Christian faith with other ologies and isms and other practices that are not God-honoring. For example, think of yoga philosophy or transcendental meditation, oriental mysticism, various aspects of life coaching, ideas that come to us from out of the spiritualist church. All sorts of things from Eastern religions can get mixed up into our theology. In fact, other religions full stop are the kind of things that can come into our thinking. And when these things invade our Christian lives and our theology, they can become parasites. The warning is to beware of anyone and anything which offers a system for victory or fullness in Christ, which bypasses or substitutes true devotion to Jesus. And Paul's answer to this heresy is to call people back to the gospel, to call people back to the good news of Jesus Christ. He calls the church then and even now not to push Jesus to the fringe of their beliefs and their experience, but instead to keep Jesus front and center. You might remember some months back we spoke about Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Jesus is the reason for Paul's thanksgiving, which is expressed here in these opening verses of Colossians. Well, let's listen to what Paul says to the church in Colossae, having heard this report from his friend Epaphras, who was probably the founder of the church in Colossae. And I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles, or if you're using our online platform, you can click the Bible link uh, and you'll be able to look up this scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, Grace and peace to you from our God, uh, from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and you truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also has told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, in these opening words, Paul says a whole load of things that we're going to unpack in more detail in the weeks that are ahead of us. But for today, what we start to hear is the beginnings of Paul's really simple theology. And Paul's simple theology shows to us that faith, love and hope are crucial ingredients in the gospel message. So let's for a moment this morning take a look at each of these ingredients in turn. And the first thing we discover is that the gospel of life is received by faith. This is in the opening four verses of our scripture. Now, following the practice of correspondence in the ancient world, Paul begins his letter by stating his name, Paul. 
Now, his name is really important because at this moment in history, aside from Jesus, Paul was the most important and the most influential person as far as the growth of Christianity was concerned. Can you imagine for the church in Colossae what it must have felt like to receive a letter from none other than Paul himself? Paul was a man who was this remarkable combination of a brilliant mind, a determined will, but but too he was a tender and a pastorally hearted man. And in a sense, Paul was uniquely qualified to communicate the good news or the gospel of Jesus into the Greco-Roman world in which he found himself. You might recall in one of his other letters, Philippians, Paul speaks about the credentials that he had for this task. He says there that he had an enviable Jewish uh, ancestry. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he was a well-respected and, in fact, a high-ranking Pharisee before his conversion. Paul speaks, too, of being educated by one of the the leading rabbis uh, of his day. What a massive feather that would have been in Paul's cap. But Paul also speaks about the fact that by birth, he was a Jew with Roman citizenship who was exposed to Greek culture in his home city of Tarsus. Now, all of that background for Paul is really, really important, especially when that background gets um, combined with his conversion story on the Damascus Road. Now, I want to make a quick aside point at this time, and it's this point. I wonder how many times in our lives we see our background or we see our upbringing as being a hindrance towards what God wants to do in us and through us. I wonder if you've ever kind of said to yourself or even said to God, oh, no, God, I can't do that because this was what I was or this was who I was when I was younger. Or, Lord, I can't do that because before I came to faith, I was this. And so, Lord, you can't use me. But Paul here is living proof that God is a God who's able to redeem our past sins and our failures, that God is a God who's able to powerfully use our background and our backstory. He's even able to use baggage from our upbringing in our new beginning with him. I really sense this morning that some of us need to hear that nothing from our past is ever wasted in the economy of God. God is the great redeemer God who can turn ashes into beauty. Maybe one or two of us really need to hear that this morning because we've sensed that our backstory prevents us from being involved in the current story or current journey with God. Well, Paul goes on, just in case anyone should doubt his authority, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, what does all that mean? Well, simply put, Paul is not just a messenger here, but he's an official representative of the one who has sent him. Now, this is really crucial for us to understand because what Paul writes in this letter isn't merely his opinion, but actually it's God's authoritative word. In other words, Paul is sharing here sound theology or words about God, not because he's made it up because of his own clever mind, but because God has equipped him to share this message. You'll remember that Paul had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ on that Damascus road, and therefore Paul had witnessed firsthand the resurrected Christ. Now, I hope you'll agree with me. It seems to me this makes Paul worth listening to both then but to today as well. I really love that Paul, the apostle, addresses his readers in verse 2 as God's holy people and faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae. God's holy people and his faith-filled or faithful brothers and sisters. 
Now, these are not two distinct groups in the church in Colossae. These terms are equivalent, and they're speaking about the same individuals. They're holy and they're faith-filled. They're faith-filled and they're holy. Holy people who are full of faith. People full of faith who are holy. And that should be the description, of course, of all of us who have been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Holy people who are faith-filled. Faith-filled people who are holy. You see, in Paul's very simple theology, and this is unpacked as we journey through the story and through this letter, you can't have one without the other. Believers must be in Christ. That phrase he begins to use here in the letter. And if you're in Christ, then you'll be seeking to live like Christ, albeit imperfectly and therefore needy recipients of God's lavish grace. These believers were in Colossae geographically, but they were in Christ spiritually. And the crucial point that Paul wishes to drive home theologically throughout his letter is where we are and who we are in Christ is far more important than where we are geographically in life. This relationship of being in Christ signals that transfer that took place when these believers came to God for mercy and forgiveness. And as he says, they understood for the first time what it meant to be recipients of God's grace. Paul makes reference back to that moment they migrated from death to life, the moment they went from darkness into light, the moment they went from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. As Christians, we're called to serve God responsibly wherever we are, whilst but most importantly, growing closer to the Saviour. That's what it looks like to be in Christ, in Christchurch, or wherever you happen to be geographically speaking as you're watching this right now. So, so far, so good in this opening section of the scriptures where Paul is offering words of thanksgiving and then in a few weeks time he goes into preacher mode, as you'll see. But Paul says here of this church in Colossae that they are faithful, faith-filled people who were in Christ. This faithfulness and in Christness, however, was under threat from the Gnostics who were starting to undermine the foundations of these important facets of faith. And of course, faith is essential in order for us to please God. In fact, faith is essential for us to even be in relationship with God. It's only in Christ that genuine faith is birthed. And it's only when we remain in Christ, in faith, that our uh, journey and our relationship with him, our faith is able to flourish. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The Lord, nothing more, nothing less is my salvation. Paul is saying here that those who are truly in Christ are those who have a confident faith in him alone. No bolt-ons, no swaps, no trade-ins, no upgrades, no downgrades, because Jesus is the only source of saving faith. Faith is the first. It's the most crucial ingredient. And I guess it leaves us with a question at the end of this first point. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I'm going to be much quicker with the next two ingredients, and I'm going to have the privilege in a moment of inviting Gareth to come and share with us as well. But the second ingredient is this, the gospel of life rests in hope. This comes to us from verses 5 to 8 of our text. After expressing thanksgiving for these Colossian Christians' faith, Paul shares the reason for their growth in their relationship with Jesus. And he says it's all about their hope. Now, the Greek word for hope refers to a confident, a confident expectation. This is more than just wishful thinking, in other words. 
The Colossians had hope because of their relationship with Christ and no other reason. That's what Paul is trying to say to them. As you'll discover in the weeks to come, Paul reminds them that their hope of a glorious future doesn't come from a religious philosophy or some special or superior knowledge about God, but instead their hope comes from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What can we say? Well, we can say that Jesus is the great hope giver, not just in the life to come, but in this life too, in the here and now. And I just wonder for you whether or not COVID is making you feel hopeless. And if that's true, I would encourage you to discover afresh or to remind yourself afresh that hope is and can be ours through Jesus Christ. You see, hope in Jesus is the soil for Christian growth. Since the most basic elements of faith and love towards others, which we'll come to in a moment, grow out of this foundation or this soil of hope. You know, in reality, without hope, there's no reason for faith or love, and everything may as well be directed towards ourselves and towards this world. Hope is so important. Paul describes here in these opening words a hope that's laid up for us in heaven. The writer of Hebrews speaks about laying hold of the hope that's set before us. He says, this hope we have is an anchor for the soul, a hope which is both sure and steadfast. Now, their words, those are words I learned when I was in the boys' brigade. It's the motto of the boys' brigade. We have a hope which is sure and it's steadfast. There's something strong about this hope. You see, hope is the Christian's anchor chain that connects us inseparably to God's throne from the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation didn't come to the Colossians because of their attachment to a complicated series of teachings or by their adherence to a set of demanding rituals or through their adventures into the kind of realm of aesthetic experience. Those were just the experiences that the false teachers said were necessary to be truly saved and spiritual. Paul says, no, to be in relationship with Jesus actually is to come to him and to be a recipient of his grace, to recognize afresh that Jesus died for us and that Jesus offers us life. Salvation can be yours, says Paul, when you have this faith and when you have this hope. As we look at the the volatility of the world that's around us, as we look at the uncertainty of our own situations, it's so easy, isn't it, to find ourselves in a place of despair. But as followers of Christ, like Paul, let's be thankful that we have something that remains even when everything else is falling apart around us. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we're called to be people who live in hope. And then thirdly and finally, we come to our third ingredient where we discover the gospel results in love. This is in the second part of verse four. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, says Paul. And then he says this, and we've also heard of the love you have for all God's people. Genuine faith and Christian hope don't exist in some kind of vacuum, but inevitably they result in changed lives. And one of the most visible and the strongest signs of a saving faith in Jesus Christ is love for God, yes, but too, Paul says, is the sign that we'll be loving towards other believers. Paul says in verse 4 that the Colossians' love was expressed towards all the people of God. And for me, that says something really important about the place of the church, about the place where believers come together and support and encourage one another as the people of God. If we love God, if we have this faith, and if we have this hope, 
will have this natural desire to love other believers, says Paul. Now, we're going to come back to that theme in future weeks, so I'm not going to labor it now. But it's good to know, isn't it, that those in, for those in Christ, the reality of the gospel should be evidenced by the way that we love others. The Colossian church were once hopeless, but now they have found hope. And with hope, they found other enormously valuable commodities. They found faith and they've found love. Now, Paul's theology really is quite simple. Hope produces faith and faith in turn grows into love. Hope is the root, faith is the plant and love is the fruit. How simple is that? The challenge which comes to us in the rest of the letter, which we'll unpack in the weeks to come, is to keep Jesus at the very center of our faith. What a thing to commit to at the beginning of this new year, to keep Jesus front and center. But two, the challenge will be unpacked in the weeks to, see, to, to come, that we should taste and see that the Lord is good without any extras and without the need for any other garnish or seasoning. We have a hope that's strong and it's confident and it's rooted in Jesus Christ. Let's keep him front and center of all of our thinking and all of our theology in the year that's ahead. Well, it really is my privilege now to invite Gareth to come and share with us his story of faith uh, for the last few years. Gareth, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Um, so thank you, Chris. It's an honour for me to give you a brief testimony to you all today. I just wanted to take you from where I was before I truly came to know Christ, how I came to Christ and where I am now after having truly known him for nearly three years. What I wanted to share with you today is more about my most recent experiences of coming to genuine faith. And it starts with this. All of my life I thought I was a Christian, but actually I wasn't. I went to church in fits and starts over the years, but I didn't love God. Um, I was embarrassed by the gospel and lived an unregenerate, sinful life. Many years ago, I got caught up in word of faith and new apostolic reformation teaching and churches who had apostles and prophets that focused on preaching love and power. There was an obsession with Apostolic authority, healings, miracles, stepping into heaven, angel anointings and visits. And at an extreme, being able to teleport from one place to another. Strangely, there was little mention of sin or repentance. All that really mattered was petitioning the Almighty for more power. And this was very attractive to me. I, I was welcomed with open arms, prophesied over, told all manner of wonderful things, and because I was accepted, I, I took on their theology and practices. All I was interested in was speaking in tongues, healing all manner of disease, and having everyone think I was spiritual. But I was no lover of the gospel. I eventually was accepted into Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, um, that's um, Bethel Church in Redding, California. And yeah, um, they really wanted me to start early. So I, start, I was due to start a year earlier than what I'd applied for. So I had a few months 
um, before I was going to go, and I decided to read their entire curriculum in advance. And it was so exciting to me at the time and everything I desired, but uh, my parents, who are very deeply committed Christians, warned me against it, and I couldn't understand why. But I felt like it would be unsafe if I went. And I just couldn't shake that feeling, so I chose not to go. And actually, I was quite heartbroken because I really wanted to go. But something in my heart said, no, this is not a good idea. And I now realise this was divine providence. All the time, at the time, I was swept up in a theology of God who was all love and no wrath against sin, who idolises human will but denies his own sovereignty. This is obviously not the true God. Who desires to spiritually empower sinful people, false converts with false signs and wonders that actually lead people astray from the word of God as we have it. And the theology damaged me, reduced my consciousness of my own sin, and I became a worse person for it. And in terms of how I came to Christ, well, in the past few years, I got exposure to the real gospel through another act of divine providence. And I was confronted on my theology and introduced to reformed Bible teachers who debunked fake prophecies habitually. Um, they debunked words of knowledge, deceptive heresies that blaspheme the name of God. And the fact that over time, these teachings tend to cultivate pride, carnality, cult following, selfish ambition and false conversion, all of which I realised was in my own heart. I was so shocked and I was so broken that I remember after watching one teaching by John MacArthur, I ended up on the floor of my flat for five hours, absolutely in tears, where I was confronted with the depth of my own sin, <clears throat> of which I was not aware, least of all my spiritual pride, unforgiveness, lust for spiritual power, popularity, influence, all fleshly things. But worst of all was my unrighteous living and that actually outworked an unregenerate heart and mind that I, I didn't know I had. And all of this showed me that I was utterly opposed to God in my heart and not a Christian. And at that moment, my heart broke as I saw my true condition. And I repented of all the falsehood I believed from these false doctrines and got up off the floor of a very, very different person. The man who, who got up felt an overwhelming sense of joy at the knowledge of the gospel and a love and a thirst for the word rather than a hatred of it. A love of the character of God, particularly his holiness and a love for, for Christians who I previously really, really distrusted. And this came in an instant, not from my own labour, but actually as a gift of God. And if I was to be totally honest with you, the changes in my heart are those that I used to scoff at in Christian testimonies. I thought, this can't be real, this is nonsense. But that's not true. I just was never a Christian and never found true conversion. And I say this as an admission of my earlier spiritual pride and arrogance that was completely beyond my awareness due to the deceitfulness of my own heart. But now, because I think of the work that Jesus has done in my heart now, rather than resenting God's wrath, I acknowledge it because God is a righteous God who has a real wrath against sin and so he should. And holiness is something that rather than shying away from and actually hating, I, 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 I desire it. And obviously this is a gift of God, this isn't me. 
and the Bible feels like coming home rather than just some dusty tome in the corner. And rather than relish and hide my sin, I find now that I mourn it and I, I long for righteousness. And rather than dislike and distrust the body of Christ, I actually feel a longing to be part of it. And this is not something that I could ever say of myself before. And I say this not because I'm in any way good, I know that I'm not, but because I learned from the word of God that these are characteristics of the truly saved, characteristics that are not the fruit of my own self-righteous labour, but the Holy Spirit's regenerating and sanctifying work alone. God is good. God is holy, God is mercy, God is sovereign. And this is a God that sinful me would never would have entertained. But one in which the regenerated me now actually delights. Jesus is the holy, gracious and merciful son of God and Lord of all who died in my place for my own sins. And he will never let me or any one of his children out of his hand those that the Father have given him. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will in great power sanctify me and conform me to the image of the Father's only begotten Son. <laughs> the funny thing is it feels good to be able to say this, not as a hypocrite, but with real, genuine and complete conviction. Thank you very much for listening to my testimony and I'll hand over to Kay. Gareth, thank you.